That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Miles, why are you not a musician? It seems like with, you know, your lineage and your passion and your knowledge, like, do you think that you could be the next member of Steely Dan? I do not. Hey guys, it is Claire Kramer and welcome to this week's episode of Fanatics. Yes, you made it. I made it. And so did my co-host, Jake Marin. Say hi, Jake. Hey, Claire. I'm here. I'm excited. And we have a pretty special guest today talking about a pretty awesome band, don't we? We do. In fact, when I saw this guest name, I was like, what? It was like I was flashing back to my youthful days. (laughs) Won't say any more about that flashback, but it is the amazing J. Miles Dale. He is coming on today to talk about Steely Dan. Yes, you know J. Miles. He is Guillermo del Toro's producing partner, The Strange, Shape of Water, Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, Mama, and an amazing movie, if I do say so myself, called The Skulls 3, not to be missed release in the early 2000s. <laughs> So yeah, Jay Jay Miles directed that movie and I actually starred in it. So it was it was our first big bonding experience up in Toronto. He's an incredible guy. He's awesome. I love it. And Fanatics, you're gonna get to witness the reunion right here in person. It's gonna be amazing. So get excited because we have Jay Miles Dale talking about the one and only Steely Dan. And a little bit about me. All right, Miles. So what is a Steely Dan? Well, in fact, Steely Dan is, you know, it's funny because people talk about the band and they talk about Dan and there is no Dan. (laughs) Steely Dan, as it happens, was sort of a character in a William Burroughs novel, very famous novel, Naked Lunch, which was made into a great movie by David Cronenberg, starring my friend Peter Weller. But Steely Dan was not a person. Steely Dan was, in fact, a dildo. So I guess we're explicit in minute one. But yes, in fact, Steely Dan was a sexual aide in uh, the novel Naked Lunch. And when the two principal members uh, formed the band in 1972, Walter Becker and Donald Fagan, and they were looking around for a name, and I guess that seemed as good as any, it sort of fit their sense of humor as people would come to realize retrospectively, because I think it just gave them a chuckle. That's what a Steely Dan is. 
Oh my gosh. Okay. But I need to be clear. This is not a podcast today about that Steely Dan. It's about the band Steely Dan. <laughs> and Miles, how were you introduced to the band? What, what was your first introduction? What's your origin story? So my father was a, a professional musician. Uh, he was you know, a jazz musician and he was a musical director on the Sonny and Cher show, a couple other great shows. So I, I was kind of um, exposed to a lot of music when I was a kid. And I heard it was 1977 or 78, and I had a nice eight-track cassette player in my little Alfa Romeo. And I think we were driving down to Florida with a couple of friends, maybe 16 or something. And I had the tape, the eight-track for Asia, which was their, I think, seventh record. And I just played it over and over because it was fantastic. And as it turned out, the tenor sax player who played on deacon blues and then again on fm a hit that they had a couple years later was a guy by the name of pete chrisley who had been in my dad's band so i had sort of a fascination with him and also you know uh uh, just the the music in general and the stories because they were kind of cute you know some of them were dark they were funny there was interesting characters so um i wasn't really a storyteller yet like in a film sense but i did find these stories interesting and amusing the music was you know at a time when you know there was all kinds of stuff going on but they were really the epitome of what i thought was like a jazz rock combination with really nice you know charts and you know arrangements and horns charts and everything else so it was really asia on that florida trip and then i worked my way back i went back to the previous record which was the royal scam and then back from there all the way to you know what was Arguably, their biggest hits were on their first album, you know, Reeling in the Years mm-hmm. and Dirty Work, you know, were pretty big hits. And then the next couple of records uh, really didn't have a ton of commercial hits. And it was almost getting down to Asia before, you know, with Peg was a big hit and some other songs like that. And then on Gaucho, their next record after Asia, which is Hey 19. By the time they got to Gaucho, which was like only a couple of years after Asia came out, I'd been all the way back and I was fully loaded on all six or seven records. So I was the first guy at the record store when Gaucho came out. And then again, for Donald Fagan's first solo record, The Nightfly, which also came out in, in 1981. So that, that's kind of the basic trajectory of my dandum, as we call Steely Dan fandom. Is your dandum? I love that. I have not heard that before. Dandum. <laughs> so if Someone has never heard of the band. Aside from a great entry point, which I want to get to in a minute, how would you describe their music? Like, give me the pitch to go out and listen to some Steely Dan. How would you describe the band, their music, their presence? And I think the rock jazz was a good explanation to it, really spot on about how their their music is. Again, you know, the popular bands of the 70s, let's say, which were my kind of teen years, the late seventies anyway, you know, there were all of those bands, obviously the, the stones and the rockier bands. Then there was like the Eagles and that kind of middle ground Fleetwood Mac that I guess you'd call kind of pop music. And then there was straight jazz that I listened to, but there just wasn't a lot that did that. What you'd call jazz rock. I mean, you could make a case for Herbie Hancock in sort of a particular way, but that was mostly instrumental so i think for one and i mean maybe this sounds bad that you know other people don't appreciate music and i do but if you have an appreciation for musicianship 
and that kind of writing, great songwriting, great stories, and just a very kind of a lush arrangements, you know, great instrumentation and great solos. Like I said, I came from jazz in high school. Like I wasn't ACDC and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. Like I was a little more Boz Skaggs, Earth, Wind and Fire, those kinds of things, you know, so some soul, some R&B, some jazz. Like I wasn't really like pounding the hard rock as much. So again, I think it's for, for people who appreciate that kind of more sophisticated music musicianship and writing and arranging, you know, for sort of a, a broader band. It's not like a quartet with just guitars and stuff, you know, I mean, uh-huh. there's horns and there's everything else. So it's so kind of unique that it attracted me in a way that I had to go and listen to, to everything all at once. And like I said, I made my way back through those seven albums in the course of about two years after hearing Asia to the point where, I became, you know, really, really very familiar with their music. And then I had to wait about 17 years for them to go back on tour. So remember, uh-huh. this is a studio band that started as a couple of guys who, who were songwriters who had a band on the first record. And then they decided they didn't even want a band. The two of them just wanted to write songs and go into the studio with all these different guys. And so they would bring like five guitar players in to try a solo you know it's like okay you do it do a few takes no next tomorrow new guy new guy new guy new guy so it was really very much these two guys who started as a band and became like a studio band where there were you know dozens of different players and they would have like a normal rhythm section generally on one record so that also fascinated me again with my father being a professional composer and arranger and me understanding, having spent time in recording studios, I understood sort of how it worked. And I was fascinated by that. Also, they, they had some really interesting technology going. I mean, they had this engineer, Roger Nichols, who uh, it was like the first drum machine where he had there's some famous photos of, of a long piece of tape going right around the studio in the room, all around chairs and being held up. And it was the first drum loop. So there was sort of some cool technical stuff going on. It was always very audiophile, high end. So, you know, when you're a teenager and you get your first nice pair of speakers and you turn it up to 11 because, you know, you're baked on a Friday night and you just want to have a great time. It's good to have good audio quality (laughs) instead of like your eardrums bleeding as some of my friends uh, experienced. That sounds better than that. Uh, So you finally got to go to a concert, though. How old were you, and what was it like? It was quite something. They had stopped touring in 1974. There were a couple of bootlegs of their live performances around that weren't very good quality. But this was before, you know, Gaucho had been their uh, eighth record, I think it was in 1980. And this was in 1993 that they announced that they were going to get together and go tour but no new record. The next new record wasn't until 2000. So I scheduled a casting session on purpose for some show, whatever show I was on in New York. It had to be on these dates. And uh, (laughs) it was the only time I've ever been to Madison Square Garden. But the strange thing is, I knew people who knew the band, but we, we couldn't get any tickets. So it was down to the day and I was standing there very desperate outside Madison Square Garden there on 34th Street and I got a couple of tickets and they looked reasonable and I hoped that they were real yeah the guy seemed sketchy 
<laughs> and we went in and it was just magic. It was amazing to hear it all and to hear these different arrangements. There was a record that came out called Alive in America that was uh, from that tour. And it was just really remarkable because they had changed some stuff up and, and the band was really tight. In fact, we got word somehow that there was a party, you know, with the band up at a place called the Bat Bar up on 57th Street. And so me and my buddy went up and we snuck into that and we met some of the guys in the band. Donald and Walter weren't there, but a couple of horn players and Drew Zing. So Amazing. we partied a little bit with the band. But the fun thing is I've seen them 20 times now in various cities and a couple of times in Chicago, many times in New York, Toronto, Denver at Red Rocks, L.A. at the Forum, Madison Square Garden, Saratoga Springs. But about, I don't know, 15 years ago, I was living in New York this summer, an ex-girlfriend of mine I somehow reconnected with, and it turned out she was married to Hiram Bullock, who's a very famous, he passed away now, but he's a very famous guitar player. You know, he played Little Wing solo on Sting's record, and he played with Donald and Walter. And so Jennifer and Hiram introduced me to the drummer in the band, Keith Carlock, who I've stayed in touch with. So getting, <laughs> getting in with the band was also a next order of business that I, I wanted to do. So at least I have um, the ability to go and find some tickets when I need to, when I go and see them for the 21st time, whenever that may be. I love this. And I, I guess I'm just curious, Miles, you know, clearly you're passionate about Steely Dan. You're a Dan fan, but are there any other bands you go see nearly as much as them? You know, I have an odd taste in music. I mean, the bands that I will go and see, I mean, might be like Joe Jackson or uh, Trombone Shorty or, you know, some of the ska bands like Madness, The Specials, Alan Stone. Uh, there's a band called Monkey House that's kind of a Steely Dan band. So, you know, I'm not going to Taylor Swift concerts or yeah. nothing about Taylor Swift, but I don't fall into that. So, you know, maybe Clapton. You know, I saw Adele a couple years ago. I saw U2 a couple years ago. Those are great shows. But it's just not quite the same as some of those core bands that I like. I mean, I, I do have sort of a particular taste in music. I tend to listen to a lot of the same stuff, to be perfectly honest, as my wife will tell you when she's like, can we change the playlist? And I'll say, sure, tomorrow, you know. But there's something comforting about that. There's something like comforting knowing what you're going to hear. It's the same reason I like to even read the same books again and again, you know, but also you discover new things. Like, have you recently right. re-listened and you're like, oh, that's the first time I noticed that. Yeah. It's just when you find a particular band or piece of music or canon of, of music from a particular artist, it just kind of speaks to you and you want to listen to it for all kinds of reasons. 100%. Let's go back. You had your introduction with the fifth album. You worked your way backwards. And then Asia was coming out. You said you went to the record store and you waited in line to buy this album, right? Uh, Gaucho. Asia was my exposure. I worked my Asia way back. Asia was your exposure. Okay. R Royal Scam, Katie Lied, Pretzel Logic, Countdown to Ecstasy, Can't Buy a Thrill. And then now here comes Gaucho in 1980. First one there. In fact, I, I think... I found some sort of a bootleg of a couple of songs first. Okay. As I did with a couple of Fagan solo albums as well, where I'll harass somebody who gets an advanced copy. But then yeah. the, the other thing is, you know, I'll go by. So, you know, I've got a vinyl collection 
and they've got eight albums and I have probably 40 pieces of vinyl. So I've got like this audio file version of this and this, you know, yellow vinyl version of greatest hits and this 45 RPM radio only not for sale demo. You know what I mean? So I oh, like, I awesome. really also went crazy mm -hmm. uh, drilling down and finding a lot of their vinyl a lot of time in record shops um back in the day it's nice that record shops are actually coming back now i see that vinyl is really making a little bit of a comeback which is cool but so there was also a lot of that where you would go looking for this you know the quiet 2 version of the nightfly because it was super audio quality and they prided themselves on on that too you know the band just being like the very 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 best audio quality they were real nitpicky in the studio and i like that I like that too. I'm curious though, in the days before the internet, how did you know what specialty like sections or tracks or exclusives were being released? Like, was it word of mouth? Are you reading the village voice? Like, how are you finding out what to go even look for? Yeah, that's a good point. It's like, we all forget the times before it was easy. <laughs> you know, you'd read about something in Rolling Stone. I was subscribed to Rolling Stone back in the day. And also, um, you know, there were a uh, musician magazine was another big one. So yeah, you would read about it and they would tease it and say, you know, it would be coming. And, and again, like I would get my dad to call the tenor player, Pete, Chris Lieb and say, Hey, Pete, have you heard from those guys? Like, are you in on the new record? Do you know anything about the new record? So I was persistent in my pursuit and then you would just hear that like this was going to be the on sale date and you'd mark it on the calendar and and it was nice like i said because gaucho came out just a little bit before the nightfly which was fagan's first solo record he's done four solo records and walter becker his partner who passed away a couple of years ago unfortunately did a couple of solo records too so those were sort of interesting perspectives on you know their different kind of writing things and they and they both produced some other people too so Anything that those guys kind of did with whoever, whether it was with China Crisis or, you know, Phoebe Snow or whatever, like I would be on to because it would have it would have something kind of going for it. So I just uh, followed them and somehow my detective work uh, paid off in extra vinyl. OK, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Your dandum is very impressive. I guess I'm more curious about Dan fans because I want you to maybe explain to me why they're different than uh, like, like deadheads or uh, believers, you know, what makes a Dan fan a Dan fan? I think those are all sort of different versions of the same thing. You know, deadheads, maybe believers is not quite the same as, yeah. as <laughs> I mean, like if you go to a Steely Dan concert, it really is mostly just a bunch of middle-aged white guys. Similar to the dead, dead probably has a few more girlfriends along for the ride. But I, I think it's just, Everything from, like I said, the the songs, the stories, the characters in the songs, the sounds, you know, so it's, 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 there's a group of people to whom all parts of this uh, speak to them, all of those things. So, you know, 
these guys they they write about these really crazy characters and a lot of women you know peg and josie and mona and security joan and like there's all kinds of really funny stories and you hear a song and it's got kind of a, a wry sense of humor to it and maybe a little tragedy and a little comedy it's kind of like the cone brothers of music where there's tragedy and comedy mm-hmm. in the same place which i always find fascinating that you can do that to be able to laugh and cry in the same song or in the same scene i always thought that was a real feat so i think it's it's just people with a particular sense of humor maybe worldview and then musical taste Many of the big bands have, you know, freakish followings. Some of them are more niche and some of them are broader. But I think that, you know, the Dan and the Dead are actually pretty good comps because their fans are diehard. I mean, yeah. really mm-hmm. diehard. You, you, you see a lot of the people at the same concerts, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Hey. Yes, you do. Do you have a specific album or a specific song that you'll go to for, say inspiration or motivation or if you're in a really great mood and it's a Saturday and you want to just like feel the music vibes like what is your go-to it mostly goes back to Asia and it might be Asia or Deacon Blues off of that record or if I'm feeling something a little more upbeat basically like the perfect pop song is Peg which actually the story of, of Peg if you listen to it, it's a short song it's maybe a three minute song about a girl Peg And that, I think they went through eight or nine guitar players before they found this guy, Jay Graydon, who just came in and ripped off the solo. And they were like, oh my God, that's it. So there's sort of legendary... um, Aspects to each song? Well, just ongoing, like a song's never done because Mm -hmm. they're going to find... You know, then again, they did on Dr. Wu, on Katie Lyde, their fourth record... Phil Woods, who was a very famous alto sax player, came in and did the solo and first take, he like nailed it. And those guys were like, okay, that's it. And I think it was like a shocking thing for them because they were just so not used to it. Right. And he said, do you want me to do it again? And they said, yeah, do it again just because we'd like to just hear it again. Right. And they ended up using the first take and that was it. So it's a funny little kind of a studio lab mentality where, you know, they're just churning through soloists, which is kind of fascinating, including like big, big players. Mm-hmm. Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits mm-hmm. had a solo, I think on Gaucho, I think it was Time Out of Mind. And and so many, like when you look down the liner notes of those records, it's like, oh my God, that guy played on, you know, so... I think that that's also a part of the fascination is that it's not just Mick and Keith and Bill and Charlie getting together. It's like, okay, who are we going to reach out to for this very particular thing that we hear in our heads, this sound, this tone, you know, what's it going to be? And I also think that that speaks to the the precision of their um, their writing and their voice and their ear to say, you know, they know what they want or they think they know. And then they get through six guys who can't do it and and hope that the seventh can. So it's just kind of a <laughs> funny process that I think, again, with my dad having been, you know, a studio musician and, and me having sort of spent 
time in that world, I found it kind of interesting as an intellectual exercise as well. Yeah. And, and did you share Steely Dan with your dad? Was this something that he enjoyed Steely Dan as well? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I brought that to him. It's funny when, you're, when your dad is a jazz musician, like you're not used to trying to be as cool as your parents uh, when you're a teenager. <laughs> Yeah. But he was pretty cool, you know, so we were in nightclubs a lot when he would play and, you know, guys would come through town and, and he would play with them. You know, Dizzy Gillespie was over at the house for dinner and stuff like that. It was kind of fun that way. But yeah, when when I played it for him, he was like, wow, this is really good. And we got to be Dan fans together. And in fact, this is this is kind of funny because second time I saw them, first time was New York City, Madison Square Garden. The second time I found out they're playing in Saratoga Springs. My brother, who was a professional race car driver, was racing down there. I was going to fly from Toronto to, I think, Albany. And he was going to pick me up, go to the show. And after that, who knows? And a friend of ours who knew Gary Katz, the, their producer, had gotten us two tickets. And I've got the last seat on this commuter plane out of Toronto to Albany. So my dad suddenly decides the day before, oh, I want to go with you. Well, I said, Dad, not only is there no tickets to the show? There's no tickets for the plane. He goes, well, <laughs> we'll work that out. So he comes to the airport with me and I'm like, dad, I, I don't know, man. And I ended up leaving my dad standing at the airport <gasps> saying, sorry, bro. <laughs> Should have really gotten on this sooner. <laughs> and uh, he was like, okay, enjoy yourself. You know, thanks for nothing. So that was the second time. So yeah, we, we, we shared a love of it, maybe a little too much on that day. Yeah. And then he actually, he moved to Naples, Florida, and he did end up going and seeing them, I think in Miami or something in 2001 or 2002. So he finally Good. got his fix like, uh, you know, 10, 15 years later. That's amazing. I love that. Now, Miles, why are you not a musician? It seems like with, you know, your lineage and your passion and your knowledge, like, do you think that you could be the next member of Steely Dan? I do not. <laughs> you know, I was a singer in high school. I was in the choir and then we had a little singing group with some girls, sort of a Manhattan transfer style thing. And we actually had a couple of TV gigs and stuff like that, but that was no way to make a living. And I feel very blessed uh, to have found my, my path and, and that it was not music. I, look, if you're a great musician and you are compelled to do that, that's great. You know, follow your passion. Thankfully, I wasn't quite good enough because, you know, I do have a lot of friends and friends of friends who scrabble a living in the music business. You know, my dad was, was very lucky. He was also very talented. I mean, make no mistake. He was a a great composer, arranger, band leader, dictator when necessary, because dealing with musicians is like herding cats. I will tell you, they are very preoccupied. I love them. I love them all. But yeah, I'm grateful that I was able to avoid that. If necessary, I could fall in with somebody and sing background vocals in a pinch. But, you know, don't advertise that, please. <laughs> I will only advertise that to your friends so we can take you out and do that sometime. At the rap party, Claire. At the rap party. You got it. Yeah. You got it. Karaoke, no problem. No problem. So before we get to the love letter, we like to delve into the psyche of why. Like, why Steely Dan? Obviously, as we just discussed, you grew up 
with music, like very integral part of your life, your father, you know, but why do you think this has become such a passion for you? The following, the collection of the vinyls, all the components, not just about the band or just about listening to the music. It's almost the culture, you know? So why do you think that is? I just think it goes back to the music and how it speaks to me. I mean, it's pretty simple with music. Like you listen to the thing that you want to listen to, right? And then also, you know, delving in and going backwards and seeing the lineage and then going forwards. As I said, I think it's the combination of the music, the precision of the writing and recording, the stories and the characters that, you know, made me laugh or at least made me think. There's mm -hmm. not too many, not a lot of music that sort of makes you think. It, it's, it's kind of like some of these songs are like little novels actually if that's a way to to describe it where you know you're really thinking about this person that they're talking about in this situation you know kid charlemagne for example from the royal scam is a story about loosely based on a real drug dealer by the name of owsley who who sort of perfected this perfect acid concoction in the 70s and he was like the man but then he sort of got into trouble. And so you just, you listen to this story about this guy and then it becomes sort of paranoid in the middle of the song. You know, the, the cops know you're here and you have gas in your car because you might need to get away fast. <laughs> so it's just those kinds of evocative stories and characters. They're very literate, I guess is what mm -hmm. I would say. And, you know, music can be a lot of things. It can be headbanging metal, it can be, you know, love ballads, but but something that's sort of evocative in a way that intrigues me, like on an intellectual level, I think was a big part of it. Yes, I agree. Amazing. Amazing. All right, Miles. It's that time. Please write a beautiful love letter to the one and only Steely Dan. Okay, well, it, it won't be to Steely Dan because, as we mentioned, that's a dildo. So... Um, <laughs> I would just say, dear Donald, because Walter is gone. Walter, we miss you. Dear Donald and Walter, wherever your spirit may be, thank you so much for giving us all those great characters and for letting us see inside your brilliant but twisted minds. We share a sense of humor, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of the dandum and look forward to living a while longer underneath the banyan tree. Love miles. Love miles. Love miles. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Wow, Claire, I had never heard the term Dan fan before, but now I know J. Miles Dale is a Dan fan. A Dan fan. You know, there still is a band in LA called the Dan Band, which was very popular in the early 2000s. 
And that's what I thought a Dan fan was. But now I know a Dan fan is Steely Dan, which now I also know the definition of that, which we don't need to go into that again. But <laughs> that's new knowledge to me as well. It's a, It's been a day of education, Jake, a day of education. I mean, first of all, Miles is like one of my favorite Truly. people. He is so amazing. Now that he's kind of expressed his connection with this band, it kind of explains him more as a person to me, you know? Yeah. I feel like I know another artistic side of him. You got to see this guy in action, and now knowing his love for Steely Dan, I'm sure it opened up some things for you. Yeah, no, I mean, hearing about his deep connection to the band and how that influences him artistically and in his choices, what music did you really connect with? What really resonates for you? All right. So it, it depends on the time of my life. It depends on what's going on. Uh, after my back surgery when I was 19 and I ruptured two discs and I couldn't walk for a few weeks. And then I started going on walks a block at a time longer every day. I would listen to Tom Petty mm. every day and mm -hmm. just the inspiration. Also Kanye West through the wire. You say what you will about Kanye. That song holds up today. And I still listen to it to get pumped. And even saying it, I just got goosebumps thinking about that song, Claire, because I remember being broken physically and listening to this song and it just resonated so much with me that it got me going. Yeah. It got me through the day. And that's special when music could do that. What about you? What band or song really hits home and, and, and gets Claire in her feelings? Well, like the most formative music years for me were the college years. I was at NYU. I was living in Greenwich Village. I was, you know, it was CBGBs. It was, you know, the Village Voice and all oh. that stuff. And I was like, not only discovering older, classical, like crazy, intense music, I was discovering like what was actually happening in like the village scene as well. So it was just a crazy time in my life. But someone introduced to me to early Genesis with, you know, Phil Collins and then Peter Gabriel. Yes. Yes. And then Peter Gabriel went, obviously did his thing. That encapsulated with just like seeing live bands, crazy good live bands all the time. Cause I didn't really go to class <laughs> kind of like my own, like music education in a way. Music is so crazy important. And also like as an artist, it touches you in a way when I'm like auditioning for a certain character, I will play certain music to get me going. If I'm not automatically connected or I'm under the pressure of like testing at a studio or a network yeah. and it's so like stressful, I'll have that music pumping into my ears, like just as a whole sensory overload and kind of releases the pressure of the situation. Anyway, that's another episode too. <laughs> Cause I could dive deep into that too, Claire, but this is about Jay Miles Dale and his amazing love for Steely Dan. And what a cool guy. Just what a life he seems to live. Like so many concerts. Yes. And if you guys have friends that also enjoy Steely Dan, share this episode. Yeah. We love to reach new people. Sharing is caring. Wearefanatics.com. At Wearefanatics is our handle on X slash Twitter. We'd love for you guys to spread the word and leave us comments. We want to know what you think. Give us your thoughts. Until then, we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye, guys. And next week, right here in Fanatics, we have one of my oldest friends, Robbie Tan. You've seen him in Mayor of Easttown. You've seen him in Preacher. And most recently, Robbie was Whitey in Black Mirror, and he absolutely killed it. So make sure you're with us next week, because we're going to dive into Fortnite, and it gets real. So come on back and see us next Thursday.
Thank you for listening to Fanatics, a Roddenberry podcast. For more episodes and info, head over to wearefanatics.com or tweet your Fanatics thoughts and stories at wearefanatics. Yes, that's we are F-A-N-A-D-D-I-C-T-S. Our show is hosted by Claire Kramer and me, David Magadoff. Produced by me, Claire Kramer, and Kelsey Goldberg. Executive producers Trevor Roth and Rod Roddenberry. Our sound engineer and editor is Elizabeth Joy Windham. You can thank Stephen Mudd for our theme song. Catch us next Thursday for another Fanatics episode. Are you tired of dating assholes? Do you want a Prince Charming? If so, we're filming a reality show. Sign up here. 12 American women are flown over to the UK for a Bachelor-style reality dating show. There are so many questions about a show like this because it's so odd. These women have been told that they were going to be dating the world's most eligible bachelor, Prince Harry. What? Y'all playing with me, right? You can binge The Bachelor of Buckingham Palace exclusively on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app.